So, hello, I'm Alex Rutkeen, a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers, specialising in mental capacity and mental health law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed by Graham Morgan. Um, anyone who's ever heard one of these or seen one of these will know that I don't like introducing the person who I'm talking to. So I want them to speak for themselves. Graham, over to you. Who are you? <laughs> Thank you so much, Alex. Who am I? That's a really difficult question. Um, I work for the Mental Welfare Commission, although I'm not necessarily expressing their views. I was joint vice chair of the Scottish Mental Health Legislation Review. Um, I live with Wendy and her children, and that's the main part of who I am. That's my lovely life in Argyle, walking with Dash the dog. Um, I have a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and I've been on a compulsory community treatment order for the last... I can't remember how many years now. I Sometimes I say 14 and sometimes I say 12, but it's something like that. I sometimes write books. I wander the country meeting people. Um, and I quite enjoy sleeping. That's sort of who I am. And I quite enjoy these sort of conversations. It's quite nice to talk about myself and the world and ideas. Brilliant. Oh, well, I'm so glad I framed it that way. I love that. We could, we could have a very existential discussion, but you've really done this yeah, very elegant pen picture. Um, so the reason I wanted, well, there were multiple reasons I really wanted to talk to you, Graham, but one of the reasons I really wanted to get you into the shed is, is to think through actually what may end up being, you know, it's quite difficult territory, but I just sort of want to sort of help, help you get your thoughts on this. And part of it, or most of it, rotates around this idea of coercion in mental health care. And really, the sort of, actually, my opening question to you is, I mean, coercion can mean many things to many people. I just like to get your take on, you know, if, if we talk about coercion in mental health care, what does it mean to you? Unfortunately, I think that's a really, really complicated question. Um, in the Scott Review, I worked with someone called Simon Webster, and we spent weeks trying to work on um, a definition of coercion. And um, we drew it from, I'm very bad at academia, someone, Schmuckler or someone like that, mm -hmm. does that make yeah. sense? Yeah. And it was fascinating and complicated. We came up with the idea, drawing from that, that there is treatment that we receive, which is voluntary, and that we want to get, basically. And then there's forms of coercion that are um, formal and informal. And... The formal coercion tends to happen under the Mental Health Act, which is legalised, which is things like being sectioned, being treated against our will, but it also includes other things like restraint and seclusion and stuff like that. And informal coercion could be things like um, just believing what someone tells you you have to do and thinking you have no choice about it. So coercion can be psychological and it can be carried out without the um, authority of the law in um, healthcare settings. And it can be as varied as, um, I think anyway, I'm not sure whether this would be coercion or something else we were talking about, the ability to um, choose the clothes we wear or regulate our diet or things like that when we don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I think the key thing about coercion, when we talked about it in the Scott Review, we caused a lot of offence to many professional bodies. Not surprisingly, because it's a loaded word. Mm. When you think of coercion, it sounds like you're an oppressor, you're horrible, you're doing nasty things to us. And to be honest, we say, yes, it is. It's almost always traumatic. 
um, being sectioned, as I have been quite a few times and still am, is a traumatic event. It damages me and harms me. But we also think that sometimes it can be a benefit and that coercion is not usually in mental health settings done with malicious attempt or in ill intent. It's done with the aim of improving our lives and protecting our lives and protecting other people. So it does get very, very complicated. And I, I can't remember all the ins and outs of our discussion, but maybe that describes it to, a, to some degree. Yeah, no, it does. And I think it's almost that it's that last point, which is, I mean, all, all the way in which you were describing it as as something which is perceived as loaded because coercion, I mean, the very the very word, mm-hmm. if you then start having to qualify it with, is it benign coercion? Is it, you know, well-meaning coercion? It, it, it's already against the backdrop of that sounds like a, sounds like a bad thing. Um, and it, it's that perspective, I think, is so interesting on the kind of, you know, well, how could, when sometimes it might be justified, when sometimes, I mean, clearly there are times it's illegitimate and it's that bit where it's sometimes it's justified. And I suppose one of, that sort of leads me naturally on to the kind of, well, how can it be reduced? Or is that even a meaningful question? I mean, there might be, and it might, you might wonder, well, that's just a mean, not a meaningful question, but then, you know, how can kind of coercion in mental health care be reduced? You know, what, what, what do you think? Well, <laughs> I led our reducing coercion work stream in the Scott Review, um, and I could go on for ages, but I'm going to do my idealistic things. Um, I think it can be reduced in loads of ways. All of them result involve the use of resources. All of them involve culture change. And I think they also involve changes in legislation. Um, I think coercion or sectioning sometimes needs to happen, because without it, people like me would be dead. And there is such a thing as mental illness, in my opinion. It may be a biopsychosocial phenomenon, but it does lead us into very hard and difficult places. And that will happen whatever happens in our society, I think. I don't think we're ever going to get to the ideal place where there is no war, no poverty, no nothing. And we're never going to get to the place where our distress and our behaviour is such that we are pottering along happily. But I think there are elements of our lives where um, coercion is more likely to happen. And I think this is especially the case with people who are alienated and excluded from society. So one of my big things that I think needs to happen is that across society, across diverse ethnic communities, across homeless people, across addicted people, across people with poverty, we need to promote a society where there's a feeling of connection, belonging and trust. Um, If we don't trust the people who are claiming to help us and we shy away from them and we're resistant because we're suspicious of them, for whatever reason, it might be perception or it might be the fact that they're patronising or arrogant or don't understand our culture, then sectioning is more likely to happen. And equally, if they perceive us in a certain way and act in a certain way, then we may be more likely to be sectioned. So, for instance, if we have a criminal background or if we're from a certain ethnic minority, people might be more likely, I think, to section us because they perceive our actions in a certain way. Does that make sense? That's, That's my biggest thing, is changing society. In the Scott Review, the other thing that would really change things, in my opinion, is the inclusion of our economic, social, and cultural rights into domestic law. I think that's the biggest thing. 
a lot of the trouble we suffer from as a community is poverty, isolation, lack of employment, exclusion from education, stigma and prejudice and so on. If we had a right to housing, to employment, to welfare rights, if we were treated as proper citizens and we're not frightened we were going to be sanctioned because we can't work and things like that, then our lives would be immeasurably different. And I think we would get into less situations where we were likely to fall into pieces, especially if we had the services that we need to keep us going. In my case, I go to somewhere called Jeans Bothy in Helensborough, and that's a lovely place. It's a place where I do um, photography and creative writing. I go along for meals. We have a members meeting. We go to the local fitness place. We go to the cinema. We do upcycling and walking and all sorts of things and people do what they want to do and we run a lot of the activities. For me, that's a place of belonging and safety where I don't have to be anything other than me and where I'm accepted. We'd have very few of those places across the country. I think we should have more of them. Places where those people who are maybe lonely or isolated, not necessarily ill, can go to get a break and to be with people who understand them. Those sort of things are important as our crisis services, as our adequate community services. I think an illustration of the difficulty we face and the reason why people like me get um, sectioned more frequently or perhaps possible reason is my community mental health team is just changing now. It's beginning to recruit staff, but for the last couple of months or so, it survived on half a CPN and some bank nurse hours covering quite a large area. How do you keep people like me well and, and, and coping with life if you have such a small team because people are off sick, because people don't want to work in mental health or anything like that anymore? So we need the resources to make sure we have the services that keep us going, quite apart from our normal social conditions, which means life's good, keeps going. I'm going on tangents at the moment. No, 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 they, they, they're great, and they are very much not tangents. They are, and what you're showing is the way everything is interlinked, is, is, is the message I'm hearing. And I would also say um, I've been on a CTO for the last 10 years. I think if I didn't have the social situation I have now, I would have been in and out of hospital all the time. And I am probably uniquely lucky. Um, I have a lovely, loving new partner in my life with amazing children. We have Dash the dog who is behind me on the tables on the bed, so I really hope he doesn't start barking. <laughs> I go walking every day by the Clyde with oyster catchers and seals beside me and stuff. I have a job and enough of an income, but my job is part-time, so I get a break. I have friends, I have a loving family, and I have support in the community, like I said, from Jeans Bothy and from my mental health team. Most of my friends have nothing approaching that. Mm. And what I have should be a right for everyone. And that's what I hope changes in legislation will lead us towards where we do have friends, we do have enough money to eat healthily, we do get physical checks on our, on our health because so many of us have poor physical health. So although we look at coercive treatment and um, things like that, the background to reducing it is to giving us the lives where we cope okay and when we get help when we need it and where we need it. Problem with that is we're in a situation where um, life is difficult, where services struggle to respond to our need, where um, some of the policies we see are ideal. Some of the things we said in the Scott Review are ideal, but they're nowhere near reality. 
And I don't know how we achieve that. I'm going to talk just a little bit more because I've realized there are other things to say. One of the other things I think, apart from our community services and our crisis services, is hospitals. Um, I visit a lot of hospitals as part of my job. Some wards are brilliant, absolutely brilliant. You go in and patients say the staff are wonderful, they're really nice, they help me when I can't manage and when I retreat to my room, then come and speak to me, but only when I want them to. And that sounds lovely and there are things to do. But very frequently I meet visit wards, which even in Scotland, I think England's worse, that the, the situation is quite toxic. You wouldn't want to stay there. People are extremely ill. They're understaffed. There's nothing to do. And it's hard to get outside. And that's not, I think, a healing environment. I met someone on a visit very recently who said, if I'm in hospital, I want a place of healing. And that's everything from having the food that you are accustomed to, whatever culture you're from, to having people to talk to, to having things to do, to having a pleasant environment you want to be in, to having access to the natural world, to all these sort of things. And we just don't have that in hospitals. We've for a long time seen hospital as a mistake. It shouldn't really happen that we've made a failure of people in a hospital. I think if we had such places and intervened and put in such things as the safe ward approach and things like that, and had a culture among the staff and valued the staff enough so they could do their jobs without being stressed all the time, we would have an environment where violence and seclusion would be much, much less. We know there is evidence that you can reduce restraint, you can reduce seclusion, and you can reduce sectioning, but it requires cultural change and it requires investment in the services we have. Does that... That was a very long monologue, but um, I hope, did that make any sense? It made perfect sense. And Graham, I, the reason I want people to come in my shed is to talk. And so if they, if they don't talk, we have a serious problem. So, yeah, no, I think it's, it's, yes, no, I think it's, there is, as I said, there's so many things interlinked and so many things to pull on. And, and I mean, one thing, I, I remember being on a panel with you many years ago, or quite a few years ago now, and 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 the thing you said there, which has always struck me, and I, I, I'm, I'm just going to say it to you, and you can tell me whether this is something you still believe, was the way I heard it was one of the things you were saying is, legislation's, you know, legislation's all very well, but the one thing you can't do is legislate for love. And in terms of care and in terms of things like that, how do you, how do you get that? And I'm just wondering whether that's, you know, whether that's still your sense or whether there actually there are legislative things, you know, maybe you're more positive about some bits of legislation, if you see what I mean, because it's a few years since you, since we, we had that discussion, you, you've had more involvement in, for instance, the Scott Review since then, and, and the power of legislations, for instance, to say, as it were, give us more money at, at one level. I, th I think in a weird way, we can legislate for love by giving services the ability to love. And that involves resources and that involves valuing the staff and valuing us. I still firmly believe that um, love, although I know that's quite a challenging word to use in mental health services, is fundamental to what we do. I've been saying it for many, many years, but I, in the Scott Review, I came across the promise, which is where um, looked after children in Scotland in their thousands were surveyed on the key thing that they thought would improve their lives from healthcare and other professionals. And they said, love, love is fundamental. And you can certainly see that in looked after young children, but you can also see it in many, many um, adults and others with a mental illness. Um, 
the sad thing is that many of us have had um, pretty horrific lives and we can be deeply suspicious of authority, deeply suspicious of other people, hard to get on with, but also absolutely lovely people. And sometimes we do crave love and sometimes we reject it. And sometimes we get sectioned and that's like the ultimate insult. But for me, I've met some, it's mainly been nurses, some nurses who seem to give a sense of, I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It's really almost indescribable. They believe in me. They want the best for me. They believe they're doing the right thing. They're taking responsibility away from me at a time when I'm completely unable to maintain my independence and responsibility. And for a time, that can feel absolutely horrific. It is horrible going to the toilet in front of nurses and things like that. But I think if I know the person is doing it, is doing that inspired by love for people like me and my community and the hope that we have a better life, rather than doing it because they are authoritarian or aggressive or judgmental, then we have a very different world. And unfortunately, too much of the world because it is so stressed and because I've seen a polarization of views in recent years where professionals can see us as the enemy and we can see them as the enemy, where love becomes less less frequent, where um, people are more likely to have the police called when they go and attempt suicide and more likely to be arrested than to be given care and compassion and services or where people speak to services in absolute desperation, saying, I can't cope another moment. And it's not good enough to say, use your decider skills. You've done the course. You can manage through the night. And it's not good enough to say, have a bath. And it's certainly not good enough when someone is about to die to say, you've got capacity. It's your choice where you live or die. Because when we're in those situations, we can be very confused, but we're usually absolutely desperate for some form of comfort and help. And that rejection, well, the rejection sometimes produces the exact reaction that you would imagine when you are told and feel that you're useless and awful and the police have taken you all the way to hospital and people have looked at you and said, you don't deserve any help. Then it's no wonder that people then go home and do the various things they do that result in their death or their injury. That's a very, very sad way of looking at it and i can't really remember what your original question was no I'm going, uh, Graham, you started out so positive on, on the idea of uh, of, of that sense no, that there yes. are there are things you can do to facilitate the ability for and love of course is a difficult word to use in professional settings but to facilitate that ability of a professional to go i'm you know I, i'm genuinely here because i wish to help you and for the person on the receiving end of that help to actually perceive yes i understand that's what you know th there is a genuine feeling of help and, and and you describe that so poetically i am not going to try and repeat back to you because i will just hash it up but maybe I'm, could could i just come in on that i was thinking yeah. two examples we yesterday i had a zoom meeting with people from across scotland with lived experience and we were talking about relationships and that was really interesting where we're talking, sometimes there is a need for a boundary, but there's still need for that compassion. Mm. But we were also talking about the um, very well-known joy of meeting people who you know have lived experience, either as a professional or just as lived experience, and how that creates an immediate connection and trust that sometimes we can't have with other people. 
And the other thing, going sad again a bit, was um, I was speaking to my mental health team manager yesterday when I went to get my JAG. And he was asking whether I um, would like to have a proper CPN because we've had so few CPNs. I haven't had one for ages. I just go to my depot clinic for five minutes and get a JAG, which I don't like. And um, I said, I've sort of given up over the last year since COVID because um, I've gone from CPN to CPN and you come in and they ask you personal questions and they're doing their job, but there's no connection. Mm. Not their fault. They're changing all the time. And initially in COVID, they wanted as far from you as possible. But for me, and I think for many people, when we're talking about our mental health and our well-being and our fears and anxieties, you don't just walk into a room with a stranger and say the most shameful, upsetting things you've ever said in your life. You need to grow to trust and to feel comfort and to feel they want to be in your life, that they're not thinking about what to make for tea when you talk about something terrible. And um, that's sadly lacking in our services. I have experienced it. I have had some fantastic helpers who have really allowed me and given me the opportunity to, to be with them and feel at ease with them. But it takes sometimes, it can take a year for me to do that. Um, in contrast, just to go on a tangent, I've been going to um, Argyle and Butte Rape Crisis for the last year and a half. And the opportunity to talk with no stated goals, no time limit, no topics that you have to stick to, and no targets has been utterly liberating. It has been the most wonderful thing to talk about things that have happened in my life years ago and more recently when I've never had the chance in the 30 or 40 years I've been going to mental health services just to talk about the things that are important to me. That was that was wonderful. And I wish our statutory services would follow the same fashion. That instead of going into a clinical room and getting a jag, I would walk along the river with a CPN who would say, I don't know you, I've never met you before. I want to know what you like as a person and what you like and what you want to do and what you want to achieve. And maybe even discuss my care plan with me. I haven't a clue what my professionals are wanting to do with my treatment. I've never seen my care plan. So considering I've been a mental health service for 40 years, it would have been nicer if, if maybe a, a mental health professional had said, this is, this is our aim. This is what we're trying to achieve with you, which is going on a very long winded and tangential perce perception. But I think those sort of things about relationships and how we relate to each other are, are crucial whether it's to do with care plans or not which is um just a, a red herring no well Graham, i feel so bad because the the conversations I, I i love these conversations i have with you and i would love to keep it flowing my problem is that i i, I try and keep these to 20 minutes and we've slightly blown through already so with the deep irony of just getting to the point where you're saying how wonderful it is to have the time to talk, I'm afraid I'm going to have to call time on this. But Graham, I am so grateful to you for your time. Um, I'm so grateful to you for just the way in, of, of, of you have covered so much and given so many illuminations of how much more there is to think and about how it is all so incredibly interconnected. Uh, thank you very much indeed for your time, Graham. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be there. I should have gone into the law and the legislation, but I went into my ideals and I think that's fine. Well, not just fine, actually, at many levels, far more important, because unless you've got the ideals right, then all the law in the world is, is, is achieving nothing, in my view. So thank you, Graham.